0: Hello, my brothers and sisters um, from around the world, in different parts of the world, and it's just great to be with you again. And we're going to actually go back to basics basics today. We're going to look at how Muslims uh, approach our religion. We're going to look at the kinds of tactics that Muslims use, the kind of approaches that they've been taught. Um, Sometimes they have been taught by uh, professionals, Muslim professionals around the world. Sometimes it's just the way Muslims don't understand the biblical text and how they uh, they look at our. and they want to try interpret it, often imposing Islamic ideas on our text. And We're gonna just look at a few kind of pitfalls that Christians often fall into when they are discussing uh, religious ideas with uh, with Muslims. So we're gonna look at a couple of different things to be aware of of when you go into a conversation or a discussion, um, maybe even a debate, and uh, just a, a few things you need to be aware of of when you are talking about religious issues with Muslims. Now, we're going to use examples um, from the whole topic of gender of men and women in Islam just to give an example of what we mean as we go through these different areas to watch out for um, in your conversations. Now, it's really important to remember that many Muslims around the world have watched Muslim polemicists, i.e. Muslims who are challenging Christianity and are asking probing questions of Christianity, often fairly aggressively. Um, we're thinking of Muslim leaders like Shabir Ali. Uh, he's not an aggressive man. He's, he's He almost comes across as a gentleman, really. He's an Asian Muslim based in Canada. Zakir Naik, now he certainly is aggressive. And many, many Muslims love Zakir Naik. And then, of course, the, the late um, Ahmadidat from South Africa, whose material is still being used today. And yet, almost every point of Ahmadidat's books that are out there in circulation that every other Muslim seems to know and have access to, almost all all the points and critiques he had against Christianity have been answered by Christians. And all we Christians need to do is do our homework to be able to answer these men around the world who are hugely influential. Now, there's other Muslims who are influential too, but those are the three big names that you will hear on the lips of Muslims when they come to challenging Christianity. Um, when we think of Zakir Nayak, he's hugely influential, especially in Pakistan, India, and his reach goes right across to Britain, America, other parts of the world, North Africa. And I'm amazed when I talk to Muslims from around the world, how many of them have had access to Zakir Naik's material. Now, I just want to tell you a story. Um, This was just maybe three weeks ago. I was in a home of a very, very traditional Muslim family. And there's gender segregation in this family. And they have two uh, reception rooms. I was in with the women and then the men were separate in another room, separated by a curtain. And um, the father had gone upstairs um, to bed. It was getting late at night. And the the sister, who had a couple of children, uh, lay down on the big floor cushions that all of us women were going to sleep on down in the living room. And as the sister lay down to sleep with her two children around her, the young 16-year-old of the family, just a British-born Muslim, but of a very, very uh, traditional Muslim family, it was as if their whole culture and family had been taken from uh, a, a, a very conservative Muslim culture and just transported into London and I hadn't changed one iota. And so I was sitting on the floor on these cushions with this young 16-year-old, and suddenly the 16-year-old just blurted out how she was so proud to be a Muslim. And she, she um, was wanted to uh, become like Zakir Naik. And she'd been watching Zakir Naik all over the Internet. And she says, I love the way he just annihilates his opponents, and he just puts Christians in their place. And I sort of looked at her and I thought, you are aware I'm a Christian, right? And um, she knew I was a Christian. She knows that I actually serve God. She knows my whole life is dedicated to serving God. And she said to me, I really want to serve God. I'm not going to get married. I'm going to be a single Muslim and I'm going to just uh, uh, live for Allah. And it was Zaki Naik that had given her this passion. She wanted to be a debater for God. And she and I, for the next three hours, as her sister and these children were sleeping around us, we just debated back and forth for the next three hours on faith issues. Now, she had not learned her ideas at all. All she'd done has she had wrote-learned her ideas from Zaki and Ike. So Zaki and Ike presented these arguments. She just wrote-learned them. And like a parrot was just throwing them at me. But what was wonderful is I was able to just stop her on every accusation she threw at me. I said, whoa, whoa, just stop a minute. Okay, you've given me that accusation about my faith. Now let's just look at that accusation and let let me respond to it because everything you've just said is actually not what the Bible teaches. Zakiya Naik has taken our Bible out of context. He has manipulated the text for his own agenda. He has only quoted half the verse and he hasn't been honest, uh, had an honest interpretation of our verses, of our, of our Bible. And we, I was able to just push her back and help her see her flawed arguments. So what I want to do now is to show you just a few little tips or um, a few things you need to be aware of when you do discuss with a Muslim. It can even be a Muslim who is not well educated because if they've watched Muslims on TV like Zaki and Ike, they will have arguments against your faith that they really believe is solid and foundational. And yet very rarely has a Muslim ever thrown a question at me that I can't answer. And that's not because I'm an amazing person, because I'm not. All it is is that my team and I have done our research. We have a solid foundation to build our life upon the Bible. We become biblically literate and we become Quranically literate, Islamically literate, so that we're able to grapple with the kinds of accusations that Muslims throw at us. So the first thing to remember is when a Muslim approaches your scripture, the Bible, often uh, what Muslims will do is they will, what we call in London, the, the, and it's the late Benazar Bhutto paradigm or model. Don't worry about the, the terms or the titles of, of these different tactics that we're going to tell you about. Um, we call it the Benazar Bhutto pra- paradigm because uh, my colleague Jay Smith back in London, in fact, um, he, w- he was in the Oxford uni- uni- University debating union. He did a debate against actually the late Benazar Bhutto. Now Benazar Bhutto is from Pakistan. She was a politician. Her family was high up in politics, politics back in Pakistan. She was a fairly progressive woman, and she was up there on stage. She she's a very, she was a very, she's a very beautiful woman, and she was there with a lovely flowing uh, hijab just loosely upon her head and she was very sophisticated and as they, they were up there in the, in the debating union they're doing a debate about whether radical Islam or the modern face of Islam was the true form of Islam. Now uh, Jay gets on well with Ben Bhutto, uh, or he did uh, when she was alive uh, however they were on two different sides of this debate. And she was debating the modern woman, the progressive kind of man and woman is truly Islamic. And he was debating, no, actually, the more radical forms of Islam, the more traditional forms of Islam is far more Islamic and is far more closer to the text. So at one point in the debate, she gets up there and she just says to the crowd, look at me, I'm a Muslim. I'm in politics. I'm a woman. I'm speaking to men and women. I'm debating men here. I am a woman who who is in the business realm. I am free to move. I am free to choose whether I wear the veil or not to wear the veil. Look at me. I am Islamic. I am a woman. This is what Islam is. She became her own highest authority. She looked at herself as a way to interpret her religion. And lots of those young uh, university students fell for that, fell for her paradigm, fell for her model, Not one of them thought that maybe everything she had just said could not be found in this book, the Quran. Maybe everything she had just said could not be found in the life of Muhammad. So she became her own highest authority. And brothers and sisters, men and women around the Muslim world keep making themselves the authority of what Islam is. We do not do that with any religion. Remember what we have said in previous sessions. If you are a Christian, you go back to your man and your book, you go back to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible. If you're a Muslim, you go back to your man and your book, you go back to Muhammad and your Quran. We base our lives and how we interpret our faith on our books and on our man. On For us Christians, the man, the God who became man, for Muslims, just the mere man and the text that he says is from God. Of course, as a Christian, we don't accept that. So for example, a Muslim will say to you, Islam ennobled women. We've talked about that already in previous sessions. Muhammad was the perfect husband. Muhammad was a feminist and everyone believes it. Yet nobody checks it. And all you need to do is open up this book and you can expose that claim because that claim is made with no foundation. So just remember that they become their own highest paradigm um, often when they're talking about Islam. But you just take them back to their sources and challenge their ideas to help them understand the weakness of their position. Another thing that Muslims do, a second thing that Muslims do, and of course, we as Christians need to be careful we do not do this to their texts and to their religion. We need to honestly grapple with their texts rather than impose upon it. And that's what Muslims do to the Bible all the time. They impose on our text uh, an Islamic idea. So they have a concept of Allah that's very different to us. And they impose their concept of Allah onto our book. They expect our God to be like theirs. And if it looks different, i.e., God Taking on flesh, there's no room in Islam to even consider it. So let's take a few ideas when it comes to, or examples when it comes to men and women. In, Islam, in Christianity, we have the free mixing of men and women in our churches. Brothers and sisters sit together, we worship together. But the Muslim, and according to this book here, when they and Islam teaches this through and through, all through their literature, the idea is that if a man and woman comes together, the devil is around and there will be sexual temptation. It's the idea that man and woman cannot platonically, i.e. in friendship, just sit next together side by side without there being sin. You cannot be... Pure, and you cannot be uh, uh, not have lust in your mind if you sit with a woman. It's the idea in Islam you will always lust if you're a Muslim man sitting with a, a woman. That's imposing on our scriptures, uh, and it goes against what our very scriptures teach. Our scriptures teach that we are to see each other as brothers and sisters, we are a family. But what you will find within Islam, there's no concept of that. So they're imposing their idea of morality or purity um, or the weakness of men and women in Islam. They impose on the biblical text. Oh, what about um, a divorce is easy in Islam, and so they'll come to they'll come to our Bible and say, "Oh, your Bible seems to imply that people can't divorce very easily, if not at all." And then, of course, they make a whole apologetic about how abused uh, Christian women can um, can have to are forced to stay in an abusive marriage. Of course, the Bible doesn't imply that or doesn't teach that. But Muslims will then impose their idea of easy divorce for men and ask, why on earth is it not easy for people to divorce in the Bible? Um, the idea that man and woman should be separate from one another, they impose that on our text and that this is a deeply sensual book. They say this Bible is deeply sensual because their view of man and woman should be separate. Or there's hijab, the woman completely covers, and so on. So there's an imposition of their theology onto our texts. Another thing, a third thing that Muslims do when they um, address, come to our texts and our ideas, in English, we call it smoke, smoke screen or red herring. Don't worry about those titles. What we mean is, basically, they use tacti- tactics to divert our attention away from the weakness of their position. <laughs> so, for example... Uh, Some of the topics that we've looked at in the last few sessions, we've looked at some pretty gritty topics in the Quran. We've looked at the well-known one that men can beat their wives in the Quran. We've looked at how women are always seen in a sexual light. We've looked at how um, Muhammad had revelations, convenient revelations from Allah in Surah 33, 53, where uh, Allah enabled him to be a really antisocial man. And Allah helped him to um, really run his household just how he wanted to run his household and so there's all these weaknesses with the islamic position even in their own quran and the moment you you raise these weak positions these difficulties that you as a christian have with this book they will immediately flip the the idea back onto the bible and they will get the christian onto the defensive so the the christian spends the rest of the time (laughs) trying to defend their own scriptures when actually originally the conversation was challenging islam And so when Christians are discussing with Muslims, we are always on the defensive. Always we are on the defensive. But as Christians, we have to learn to go on the offensive. We have to learn to ask probing questions of our Muslim friends because they have never thought through their ideas. Remember the story at the very beginning this young 16-year-old girl that I was debating, or she was debating me actually for three hours, she had just wrote, learned every idea from Zaki and Ike. She hadn't thought it through. And so all I was doing was just stopping her in her flow, and I was just stopping her, and then I was asking probing questions of her position. Now, when she tried to throw it back on me, I said, no, 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 my sister, I'm asking you the question. You threw out that challenge, but you haven't thought through that challenge. I want you to think it through. And I had to keep holding her accountable because I was not going to go into the position where I'm always on the defensive. I'm always the one having to defend my position. And I tell you around the world, and this is a especially true in the Western world. But Christians are always being asked questions by Muslims. And because we know very little about Islam, and sometimes we don't know much about our own Bible, unfortunately, we tend to be put on the back foot. We are always defending. We have to learn to take the questions to them. Because it's Islam that is the weak position. Islam is where the troubles are, not our book, not our theology. So here's an example. Uh, you've just uh, maybe asked a Muslim some difficult questions ab- about women in this book. And a Muslim would just turn around, and I've had this so many times, well, Betty, your Jesus calls women dogs. All women are dogs, according to Christianity. Well, they're referring to a story in the New Testament. It's actually quite a wonderful story where um, the Jesus is with uh, with the Jewish people in a very Jewish home, a lot of men around him, in walks this Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman is um, wants Jesus help, and Jesus, whenever a, a, an unusual situation happened, he uses it to teach something, and he always uses it to confront a, a wrong uh, idea that those around him have. And so the woman is is asking for his help, and of course the whole conversation happens where um, Jesus is talking about how he's come uh, for the house of Israel. Now the woman responds, and she says even and in the, in, the, in the Greek, is the idea of the family dog or the puppy or the pet. The family dog, the puppy, the pet, um, even they get the crumbs from the master's table. So the idea is she's like in the position of she's not in the inner circle of God's people, but even the pet the, of the owner receives crumbs from the table of the master. He saw her faith and he used it to challenge the false ideas of those that were in the room. And he responded to her with grace and with compassion and gave her what she was asking for. Now, Muslims just miss that whole concept of what's behind the story. All they see is that she said, uh, put herself in a position as if she was like a dog. Now, Jesus didn't call her a dog, but she was putting herself in the position of how she was seen in in those Jewish circles because she was outside of the Jewish circles and she was looked down upon. And yet God responded to her need. All what Muslims would do, you you point out difficult scenarios in this Quran, and what would they do? They go to an example in the Old Testament. So they pull out an example from the Mosaic law. They pull out an example of uh, maybe a a gritty example of one of the prophets uh, sleeping with a prostitute, uh, or incest. We see incest in the Old Testament. In fact, I had a a dear friend in London. She's from, um, she's an Alavi Muslim, and Alavis are more folk Islamic. They are a Shiite uh, offshoot of Islam, so they're not part of the Sunni mainstream form of Islam. And this Alavi Muslim had uh, started dating or going out with a Greek Orthodox boy. It wasn't a very moral relationship, unfortunately. And she started reading the Bible. Unfortunately, the man she was going with wasn't setting a good example of how a Christian man should live, but that's beside the point. What really struck me was she started reading the Old Testament, and she was reading it through Islamic eyes. And as she read it through Islamic eyes, she came across the story where you have Lot and his daughters, and there's incest, and there's just really nasty ideas going on. And um, she was so appalled, she put the Bible down, and she says, that's disgusting. How can that be in a book of God? Well, what had she done? She had imposed upon our text something that was not there. Um, she was um, she wasn't reading it honestly. She um, was uh, she knew there was some terrible things to do with the Quran, but she found something even worse or what she thought was worse in the Bible. And she completely imposed and, and, and went away from what her Quran said and just went to what our scripture said and was disgusted by what she read. Unfortunately, she hadn't realized that what she was reading was just a a book that was honestly reporting the behavior of how human beings actually behave. This was just an honest report of a very sinful situation. So she was imposing upon our text something that, uh, as if uh, imposing her way of interpreting her text onto our text, as well as not dealing with the horrible issues that this Quran raises when it comes to men and women. And she was forgetting and ignoring that. She was shooting off into our Bible and getting distracted by what she thought were bad stories in our Bible. Of course our Bible has bad stories. It talks about human sin. Human beings behave pretty badly. That's what the whole Bible is about, dealing with human sin and the remedy to human sin. So we have to help our Muslims understand that, our Muslim friends understand that when they approach our scriptures. Then what Muslims do is everything, everything, history, everything is judged by this book. This is something to be uh, very aware of about when you're talking with Muslims. I have been fascinated in my conversations with trained Muslim missionaries. These are doctors. These are lawyers. These are highly intelligent people from around the Muslim world. We meet them in London. London is, is a place that brings Muslims from around the world. So I've met people from Persia. I've met people from Pakistan, Afghanistan. Highly intelligent people. And I meet doctors and I talk to them about spiritual things. And they talk to us about spiritual matters. And you're, you're asking, say, a, a, a critiquing question about the story of Muhammad. So you may say, well, Muslims claim that Muhammad is the one who received these revelations. But even when you look at the stories themselves from the hadith, from the sayings of Muhammad, you will find in the hadith from the saints that it's not quite so clear cut that this book even came from God. And that's according to their own tradition. So you have stories of where where the early uh, followers of Muhammad after he died had gone out and they were um, compiling the Quran from all sorts of sectors of society finding it on on leaves and bones and stones and all the rest of it and then suddenly um, you have stories of some uh, uh, men saying that they were the only ones who remembered this revelation or uh, parts of the Qur'an were getting lost when they were, were they, when they were getting killed in battle. And you have all these weird scenarios of uh, very suspect uh, stories of how the Qur'an was compiled. It does not look historically reliable. And then you say to them, Actually, the latest historical information is telling us that this book actually didn't come from the 7th century. It looks like it really came, or if it did, it came from maybe about 60 years after Muhammad died and then into the the, the 8th century. And our early manuscripts are mostly dated to the 8th century. And so you start showing all historical evidence, you begin to show how, uh, where it talks about Mecca um, and Muhammad coming from Mecca and going to Medina and all the rest of it. When you look at the Quran itself and the latest historical findings, it seems to show that Muhammad had really nothing to do with Islam. And so what the Muslim does is says, well we don't go with what the historians say. We don't go with with, uh, with what's, uh, what is the latest findings. We only go with the Quran. Everything is judged on this book. Everything is what this book is about. So if the Bible, for example, came 600 years earlier or 700 years earlier, and it has um, says wonderful things in the New Testament about women. So as we looked in previous sessions, you'll find stories of women uh, and the, the cleanliness laws that they had to do in the Old Testament. Men and women had to do in the Old Testament. And then you had the Lord Jesus Christ who came. We talked about this before where, uh, and where he died and the curtain was torn in two. We enter the Holy of Holies and man and woman is pure before God because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Well, what happened with, is with Islam, they took the, they came along and they took human beings back to before Jesus, under the law, into those cleanliness laws that we now have to do, especially for women, and it brought uh, gender segregation. Women had to cover. Women had to uh, had to uh, had to. Uh, um, had to submit to the husbands, it was a patriarchal society, women were less than men, it was if it took us back to the bad times of before Jesus came, to the times of the patriarchs where there was a a real gender division between men and women. And so what the Muslim does, they don't see that there's a problem here, that Islam took us back before Jesus and they have reversed everything to be into a context, into a tradition and into a culture that's not even relevant for today. Or they see, oh, well, no, the Quran takes precedence. The Quran is the historical book we go to. We don't look at all the evidence pointing out that this book really has no historical authority. We don't look at any of the evidence that shows that this book takes you back to the time before Jesus. We don't look at any of that, and especially what it says about women. It's as if women are back into the Mosaic times. We don't look at any of that. We only go with what this book says. And so this becomes the the historical uh, model for today. This becomes what everything starts with. You don't go to anything that was earlier. And so this book has replaced the previous books. It's replaced everything. And we start with this. Everything is judged with this. Even when you prove that this book, this Quran actually says anything, everything that is opposite of what history is telling us. So this book, will talk about a man called Isa and then his mother, Mary. And all of the evidence points to the fact that the titles used of Isa and his mother Mary, the one named woman in the Quran, everything points to the fact that that started, those titles started when the Catholic Church, or at least the beginnings of the Catholic Church, began to rise. That's from about the fourth century. It's fourth century themes on man and woman and theology and Jesus and all the rest of it that's in this book. The Muslim ignores that. that. For them, that's not an issue. You don't trust history. You only trust this book. We have to almost pound the Muslim mind. I don't mean you actually literally pound a Muslim. I mean we have to uh, get through to the Muslim mind this block that they have when it comes to understanding history, when it comes to understanding truth, that this book got so much wrong historically, as well as when it comes to man and woman, the kind of oppression of woman that's in this book, that this book, the Bible, has addressed and reversed, this has taken um, taken us back to that time of oppression. Now, when I say the time of oppression, I'm not saying that the Old Testament um, has oppression for women. No, it does not. What I'm saying is the culture in which the patriarchs, in which the kings, in which Abraham and, and all of those early prophets and so on lived in had a very male-dominant culture that they lived in. And their behavior was, came from the male-dominant culture, not from the biblical culture, but from the male-dominant culture of their time. It's that man-made culture that the Bible is speaking into that this book, the Quran, has taken us back to. And so for them, this becomes the highest authority. This book becomes the the history of the world, even though all of the evidence shows that it got so much wrong. And one of the worst areas, and we'll wrap up on this thought, and we have addressed it a lot in these sessions. And the reason why we've addressed it is because it is such an important comparison when you're talking with Muslims. Remember the story I gave at the beginning with that 16-year-old lass, and we were sitting on the floor debating for three hours. I was in a home of gender segregation. I was in a home that was literally applying this book or applying the concepts that this book begins to introduce. And I was debating with this little lassie on the floor of that very traditional Muslim home, she in all her hijab, me with my just normal, modest, but normal Western dress, because I'm a Westerner. And I was introducing her to the whole concept of the family of God, the family of God that's represented by the the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that eternal loving family, how we as human beings are supposed to represent that. I was showing her that this book had lost the most beautiful thing that this book talks about. This book that she thought was historical, um, which we can prove is not, but that's another issue. This book she thought was historical had taken away everything that God had done through this book, what this. Book teaches us that we, as a family of men and women, brothers and sisters, married, single, daughters, wives, and and maybe um, you, maybe your widows or maybe your your orphans, whatever your position in life, we are the part of the eternal family of God in a loving, incredible relationship, freely mixing with each other because we're brothers and sisters, and that's what we need to help our Muslim friends understand.